welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Haveman, Assistant Professor of History at University of West Alabama, and we'll be talking to him about rivers of sand. Creek Indian Immigration, Relocation, and Ethnic Cleansing in the American South, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2016. Chris's book is the winner of the Alabama Historical Association's 2017 James Soulsby Award for the best book on Alabama history in the past two years. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Chris, what is the thrust of your book? Well, my book is the most comprehensive account of the removal of the Creek Indians from Alabama and Georgia to what is now Oklahoma. When I set out to write the book, I wanted to create the most comprehensive account of the Native people's migration to Indian territory. I was really interested in the logistics of it all. How do you move 24,000 people, and what goes into that? You've called Creek removal a, quote, systematic program of ethnic cleansing, unquote, which is much more serious than removals been portrayed in other sources. Would you discuss this claim? Yeah, I think it's just a response to a scholars trying to find a more forceful term than removal, which seems a little bit too benign when you consider what actually went down with the removal era. Ethnic cleansing, if you look at the definition of ethnic cleansing, is basically dispossessing a culture, race, or ethnic group out of land in order to secure it for another group. It really fits, at least the Creek experience. Ethnic cleansing can really range from forced assimilation, forced emigration, removal, and then at its most extreme, it can include genocide. Scholars have used ethnic cleansing. It's kind of in vogue right now. Gary Anderson has written a book on ethnic cleansing in the American Indian, which came out a few years back. James Taylor Carson wrote an article on ethnic cleansing in the Indian. But actually, European scholars, when they discuss ethnic cleansing in the 1990s, in the wake of the breakup of Yugoslavia, a lot of times they were trying to come to terms with this new term. They looked at the history of ethnic cleansing, and they discovered that cleansing predates the 1990s. Some form of the word cleansing predates the 1990s. Many of them who were writing in 95, 96, 97 also pinpointed that American Indian removal would fit the ethnic cleansing model. The federal government was very interested in trying to, quote, civilize southeastern Indians, uh, and this included the Creeks. And what they were hoping to do, basically, was to turn them into domestic agriculturalists and livestock raisers, and then that would open up a lot of their hunting land for white settlement, with the promise of incorporating the Indians into American culture. And so the civilization program, which goes through the 1790s through the early 1800s, is still actually in effect during the removal era in the 1820s and 1830s. So the government gave the promise, or at least gave the nod to the Indians, that if they acculturated, that they would be allowed to remain in the South as part of American culture and American citizens. Yet the federal government is really interested, and the state government, for that matter, of Georgia and Alabama, are really, really interested in removing Indians of all walks of life, rich, poor, 
those who have fully embraced the civilization program in the past, it doesn't matter. They're indiscriminate on getting every single Creek Indian out of Alabama and Georgia. They remove Creek Indians who are far wealthier than any white settlers that are coming in. They remove converted Christians. There was one, John Davis is a Baptist preacher, literally going around trying to convert Indians to Christianity, and he moves in the 1820s. A lot of Creek Indians with white fathers who live in taverns. I mean, they're entrepreneurs. Let's face it, they're very wealthy. I mean, they're also compelled to go as well. And so they want to scour the South of any connection to the Creek Nation. And so that's really where I see it as ethnic cleansing, is that they're just indiscriminate. You would think that based on this idea of incorporating Indians into American society, that they would allow the William McIntosh family to, to remain. They would allow those entrepreneurs to remain. But they don't. They try to get rid of those as well. And in fact, at one point, the ways the federal government tries to entice Creek Indians to move in the 1820s is by targeting Indian countrymen who are the white married men to Creek women. They think that if they can get them to move to what is now Oklahoma, that their wives and their families and their children and their aunts and uncles will all go with them as well. So again, any connection to the Creek Nation. Even if you're married to a Creek woman, they want you to go. They want everybody gone. They want to cleanse it, literally, of Creek Indians. Now, you've also written that Creek removal, or ethnic cleansing, was both coerced and negotiated, which seems kind of outside of the usual narrative as well. How did both coercion and negotiation work? When I approached Indian removal back when I first got to Auburn, I was colored by what I learned in high school, which was really not terribly accurate, but it was mostly based on the Cherokee Trail of Tears experience. You know, you get the image of the stockades, the bayonets, the army coming in, rounding up women and children, pushing them west. There's elements of that, but most of the Creek Indian experience is much different. And actually, the Cherokee experience turns out to be a little bit different than that, too. That's only part of the picture. I try to show the nuance in removal, and so I break the book up into three different types of migrations. And so the first half, uh, through the 1820s and early 1830s, I talk about immigration with an E. And this is Creek Indians, and I say it's voluntary immigration, uh, voluntary sort of a loaded term. But what I mean is that these are Creeks going on their own recognizance. Uh, some are eagerly going because they think that they're going to find a rich piece of land and they're going to become planters themselves. Some are part of that Macintosh group that actually sell out their own people's land in Georgia, and they're eager to go to find safety and refuge in the West. And then there's a lot of Creek Indians who go, they're not happy about it, they don't want to go, but they kind of see removal as inevitable, and they kind of feel like they need to get out there early to find the best piece of land before everybody else has to go. They're going largely peacefully, and they're going largely without a lot of coercion. They're moving on, and there's 3,500 of them that leave out of a population of about 23,000. Then the war breaks out in 1836. That's when you get the typical image of what I think removal was when I was a kid, is that Indians shackled, put on steamboats, guarded by militia groups in the U.S. Army, watched every step of the way, and deposited at Fort Gibson. There was about 2,500 of those, but this leaves really about 19,000 Creek Indians. And this is where the negotiation comes in. The primary mass of Creek Indians that leave between 1836 and 1837 overwhelmingly outnumber the military. The military had some militias, but it's largely the Army. you got lieutenants and captains, and there's some Marines down in Alabama. And they're in charge of conducting these detachments and monitoring the peace as the war ends, and they're trying to get these Indians in camps and, and go. So 
what I thought would be the army dictating to the Creeks that you need to go and prodding them with bayonets, if you will, is really the opposite. And this is what I was really shocked to find, is that what you get really is the image of the mass removals is these lieutenants and colonels pleading with Creek Indians and their chiefs to get their people to move, right? It's the opposite. The Creeks hold most of the power. Now, are they truly leaving on their own recognizance? They're, it's a yes and no answer. The, Lewis Cass, the Secretary of War at the time, makes very clear that if the chiefs decide they're not going to leave, he's going to send a large army down to get them out. That would have led to, a, no doubt, a war if that had happened, and that would have been chaotic, obviously. The Creeks do agree to leave, and they agree to leave for this reason. Alabama has been so depleted by starvation, land fraud, land sales. The Creeks are in such bad shape by 1836 that they realize they have nothing to return to. They either starve to death in Alabama or they try their luck in Oklahoma. And because of this, they held a lot of power, and they were going to negotiate. If you have a lieutenant in the U.S. Army or in the Marines begging a chief like Apostoloholo to get his men to move, 2,000 people, Apostoloholo is smart enough to say, what are you going to do for me? And so this is where the negotiation comes in. Thomas Jessup, who was overseeing the Creek War, he's also overseeing the removal of the remaining 19,000 Creek Indians. He is negotiating with the top echelon of chiefs to get them to get their people to leave. And he does this through money. He gives a whole $2,000 if he can get his people to move on time. They throw a lot of other enticements out there. They have land frauds that had happened in 1834, 35, and 36. The government was slow to adjudicate those frauds. So Jessup is promising to fast track that if he'll get their people to leave. The annuity is not due for a while, but uh, he's promising to pay the annuity for 1837 early if he can get, I mean, he's throwing money, he's throwing enticements, he's throwing all sorts of things at them. The popular hold demands some things along the route. Jessup's more than willing to accommodate, so it's a lot of negotiation. And I don't mean negotiation in the sense that the Creeks are complicit in their own removal. What I'm saying is the Creeks have nothing to stay in Alabama for. They're smart enough and powerful enough that they're going to demand something in return for agreeing to this. Now, you also talk about the role of private immigration companies in creek removal. What's going on there, and are there any other sources on these companies? Are there, is there any other secondary source work on these companies? There's a lot of private companies. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of private companies selling everything from wagons to provisions to stuff along the route. The government contracts with these people, and this is kind of stuff you see all the time nowadays, right? You have all these companies coming in that are trying to make money, but they claim that they can do it cheaper than the federal government can. And it was no different than removal. You had a big company called the Alabama Emigrating Company, which was an offshoot of an earlier company called the John W.A. Sanford and Company. And these were Two companies that were operated sort of by the same men, some leave and form the Alabama Emigrating Company later on, they are formed around 1834, and they promise that they can remove the creeks for much cheaper than the federal government. So let's back up really quick. So the first voluntary emigrating party leaves in 1827. The second one leaves in 1828. They're both led by a captain in the Army, David Brearley. He is in charge of trying to find the cheapest way to get them to Oklahoma. He averages for the two emigrations $43 and change per head. So that's how much it costs one Creek Indian to get from Alabama to what is now Oklahoma, about 43 bucks on average. 
1829, 1,300 Creek Indians go, and the price for them is $22 around. I'd have to look at the number. But economy of scale perhaps lowers the cost to some degree. And then in 1834, an immigration happens in the dead of winter when the rivers are all frozen up and uh, there's a, you know influenza throughout Arkansas. And the cost for this, as reported to the Secretary of War and the actually in the Treasury Department, but then also Lewis Cass got a, a wind of this, is that it costs $60 to get one Creek Indian as far as Little Rock. And I don't know what the final tally on that was. So the government, in addition to moving Indians, were very concerned about the cost of moving Indians. One thing about removals, it always costs more than they budgeted. So the government wanted to find a cheaper way. So as this emigrating party in 1834 was really struggling with cost, a bunch of private citizens, some were state politicians and some were local businessmen, formed a company in 1834 and petitioned the government to remove Creek Indians at $20 a head. This left in 1835, and it went way over $20 a head. They lost a lot of money on this. They also led the first detachment of Creek prisoners who were in shackles. You know, I see letters from them complaining that they lost a lot of money and they're trying to get the federal government to pay for some of their cost overruns, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. When the mass migration, what I call the coerced relocations in rivers of sand, happened in 1836, J.W.A. Sanford and Company reorganizes as the Alabama Emigrating Company. It's largely the same group. There are a few newbies, and there are some that decided not to get into this new venture. But they signed a contract to remove Creek Indians at $28.50 per head. And they remove the rest of the Creek Indians, more or less. So those are the two big companies that are involved in actually moving Creek Indians. But then there's a whole bunch of smaller little entrepreneur, mom and pop, pop and son, usually, organizations out there. And they sell provisions. So while the Creeks are in camp, you can imagine 19,000 Creeks spread from Tallahassee, Wetumpka, Chambers County, Talladega. You have all these creeks in camp, and they need to be fed. And so what will happen is you'll have oftentimes local business people or entrepreneurs or farmers or you name it who will then try to write a contract with the federal government to sell provisions. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of these people. And some do double duty. Some members of the Alabama Immigrating Company are also members of these smaller groups selling provisions. They're all hoping to make money. I don't think any of them really care too much about the welfare of the Creek Indians. Then, as they're moving west, Arkansas is very sparsely inhabited by white people in 1836. So they'll contract with what few farmers are there. You can sort of plot a trail from central Arkansas, north of Little Rock, all the way across. There are these farmers, and the government will contract to provide creeks with food and wagons and whatnot. They can stay on their property while they camp. They don't just do Creek Indians. The Cherokees and other groups that come through there will stop at these places Mary Black is one. She has a public house kind of in central Arkansas that travelers will stay at, but they, she also sold provisions to the Creeks and other Indian groups. But one interesting thing about this is many of them lose money, like lots and lots of these. They have kind of money bags in their eyes when, when they're contracting. This is a you know, federal contract. But what you see is a lot of letters in the National Archives where they're seeking compensation. They either didn't get paid for what they did do or they're complaining that they weren't able to provide provisions because the government tweaked the contract at the last minute or the, not enough Indians came or they came, but they didn't quite come to where they were supposed to come and so they couldn't get the provisions to them. Some of it's legitimate. Some of it's just excuses for why they couldn't hold up their end of the bargain. 
That's really an interesting dynamic in this removal story that hasn't been explored. I'm not so much interested in exploring it, but somebody who comes along and is interested in the entrepreneurial aspect of removal would find a trove of stuff. But connecting the dots is really difficult because you have so many of these, and a lot of them have their hands in a lot of different cookie jars, if you will. You've maintained that Creeks kept much of their culture intact after removal. How has that affected them historically? Yeah, so my book really deals with the first, like, say, two decades after they get there. I don't, I didn't do any research on, say, post-Civil War Creek Indian Territory, so I couldn't speak to that. I know certainly a lot of things changed throughout the 1800s. Getting back to the first question about the thrust of my book is I was interested in the logistics and how 24,000 people go, but I was also interested in sort of how the Creeks react to removal. How do they react to the federal government? They show all sorts of different resistance to this, but also I was interested in how they react culturally. Does removal change them? And I, the answer to that over time is yes, but the Creeks really do a lot. And if you were to really get down to some of the nuanced differences between culture they had in Alabama and Georgia and the kind that they have in Indian Territory, I think you'd be kind of picking hairs. The point I'm trying to get is they do their absolute best to try to maintain their traditional culture, at least in the first couple decades, right? They're doing everything they can. Now, some of this is limited because Oklahoma is a different environment to a large degree than it was in Alabama and Georgia. One example is the Green Corn Ceremony. Without a hitch, they continue with the green corn ceremony, at least through the 1830s and early 1840s. I'm sure somebody who comes along and writes about post-removal creeks in Oklahoma will discover that clearly Christianity is on the uptick, and to the younger generation, they may not be committed to traditional creek culture and ceremonial life. That's not to say that the creeks didn't do everything they possibly could to try to make it as much like Alabama and Georgia as they could. Now, again, Creeks are much more spread out than they were in Alabama and Georgia, so getting to these green corn ceremonies is much different. So I think that would be one example of why maybe the green corn ceremony in some places declines, because some simply just don't want to do it. You do have the wealthy planter elite, whereas in Alabama and Georgia, you'd sort of be required to attend the green corn ceremony. I think maybe in Oakland, I'm just speculating, this is not necessarily based on fact, but I do know that because some of these plantations were so far from the heart of other settlements, that you could just do your thing without being required to attend. Again, I will maintain that they had a green corn ceremony during the actual journey west. The military officers who took journals of the day-to-day goings-on of the Creek Indians weren't concerned with ceremonial life, but they have dances, they eat green corn, they will steal green corn from settlers in July as they're being moved west. They weren't able to have one while the Creek War was going on, the Second Creek War, Although some do, actually. This is an interesting thing, too. Some participants in the Second Creek War had a hiatus to go attend a green corn ceremony, and they were returning to the theater of action when they were captured. So again, even in periods of turmoil, the Creeks are doing whatever they can to sort of maintain what they know and what they're comfortable with and what makes them Creek. That's truly fascinating. Now, what about the Creeks that remained in Alabama? There's a lot of different creeks that remain in Alabama. The most famous are the Porch Creeks, and this is another area where not a lot's been written, some book chapters and articles, but those are probably the descendants of the creeks who lived down near the Tensaw region and who applied for land under the first article of the Treaty of Fort Jackson. And eventually, over time, it took a long time, but in the 1980s, they were a federally recognized Indian group, and they're the Porch Creeks based in Atmore. 
even after removal ended, there were a lot of Creek Indians who tried to make a go in Alabama. So let's you know, back up and see how this happened. In 1832, the Creek Indians signed a treaty with the federal government. This is not a treaty that they were eager to sign, but they were sort of coerced into it, if you will. And what the treaty was, the 1832 Treaty of Washington, it broke the Creek Nation up into 320-acre plots of land. All the land was ceded to the federal government. Each head of family got 320 acres. Chiefs got 640 acres, so that's a mile by a mile. 320 would be a mile by a half mile. The Creeks had 5 million acres of land in 1832. After this treaty was signed, there were 6,500 reservations that were allocated either to Creek families, to chiefs, or to some other you know, orphans, whatnot. That came out to about 2.1 million acres. So almost 3 million acres is going to go towards auction and white settlement. So the Creeks already give up half their remaining strip of land, and now they're going to take their land in, in title. So they don't have that sovereign claim to the land that they did because they were there first. They now have a government-recognized piece of paper that says this is the true owner of the land. The Creeks, not happy about this, but they thought it was their last chance to be able to remain on their land because white people didn't give a flip about the fact that the Creeks had lived there for eons. But they were hoping that because white people acknowledged a piece of paper, you know, like a deed, that they were going to acknowledge their piece of paper. This did not happen. Whites cheated them out of land. Whites sold for less of what the value was. And there was all sorts of fraud that occurred. But there were some Creeks in the 1840s who either hid or people didn't notice them, were able to escape. Under the 1832 Treaty of Washington, the Creeks, after five years, so by 1837, they would get a fee-simple patent to their land, and they would become citizens of Alabama, or they would come under the laws of Alabama and therefore be citizens. And so the Creeks had to make a real big decision in 1832. Do I move to Indian Territory voluntarily and live under my own laws and my own customs, or do I stay, and after 1837, I now have to become a part of Alabama, and so Alabama sheriffs and constables can come in and arrest me and do whatever they could that they could not do before. And so this is a real tough decision for Creek Indians to have to make. Some do leave and a lot of them stay and try to make a go of it. Of course, when the mass migrations happen, this is a moot point. But a lot of them, they're hiding in the swamps and some of them just stay around. And again, the government can't really force them to go because they're outnumbered. In the 1840s, you get Indians petitioning for a patent to their land. They're saying, hey, look, I've lived on this piece of land since 1832, 33, 34. I'm the rightful heir of it. I have a piece of paper that says I'm the rightful heir, and I want to stay here. Some do stay. And what happens to them beyond that is anybody's guess. But there are a lot of Creek Indians there. And by the way, I should mention, too, that just after those mass migrations end in 1837, there are still probably a few hundred Creek Indians left in Alabama. There are 30 to 60 small groups of people that will leave in these, sort of these post-removal emigrations. And a lot of these Indians want to leave. They want to go to Indian Territory. Because even though they remain on their ancestral homeland, they miss all their friends. They miss their family who got swept up in the big removals of 1836 and 1837. Chris, you may or may not be able to address this, but how does your book expand on the usual story of Creek removal? You've talked a lot about that, but I wonder if you can kind of sum it up. And I wonder how your book fits into the historiography of removal. When it comes to Creek removal, I'm the first to really write a comprehensive account on the removal of the Creek Indians. There's others. 
Grant Foreman, for example, who was a, a great scholar back in the 1930s, wrote uh, chapters on Creek Indian removal, but he also wrote chapters on the Choctaws and the Chickasaws and Seminoles. So nobody's ever written a cover-to-cover account on Creek Indian removal. And so mine's the first, so that's where mine fits in. But when it comes to placing myself within Indian removal historiography, one of the things that differentiates myself, I'm interested in the logistics of it, but also one of the areas where mine may differ is I don't de-emphasize the role Andrew Jackson played in Indian removal. Andrew Jackson is guilty as charged for all the bad things that happened to the Creek Indians and other southeastern and northern Indians. Uh, He is every bit, I would argue, the Indian hater that other scholars have said he is. But when we focus on Andrew Jackson, oftentimes we miss the other politicians who are equally as complicit in the removal story that Andrew Jackson is. So, for example, the Treaty of Indian Springs, which really kicks off Indian removal era in the Creek Nation, was negotiated under President James Monroe. The first voluntary immigrants to Indian territory occurred under John Quincy Adams. And then that mass migration, those 19,000 Creeks, a lot of them are marching west as Martin Van Buren's president. And he still continues the Jacksonian policy of getting these Indians out of there. I also argue that probably the most pro-removal people are state politicians, Alabama politicians, Georgia politicians, like Governor Troop in Georgia and C.C. Clay in Alabama. These are Jacksonian followers when it comes to removal. They are absolutely every bit as zealous in getting every single Creek Indian out of their respective states as Andrew Jackson ever was. And so I focus on them uh, as much as I focus on Jackson. I argue Jackson was largely passive-aggressive when it came to the Creeks. When he came to office in 1829, There was already a pretty well-oiled removal machine in Alabama and Georgia, and that was the state politicians. The governors and the legislature were actively engaged in doing whatever they could to dislodge the Creeks, the Cherokees, you name it, from the state. I also put the emphasis on squatters that come into the Creek Nation illegally and will not leave. So if you ask a Creek Indian in 1835-36 at the height of the chaos, who do they despise more? It wouldn't necessarily, I think, the answer be Andrew Jackson. I think it would be the white squatter who's squatting on my piece of land about five acres away. They won't leave, and they brandish their guns whenever Creeks come by, and they're willing to kill a Creek Indian to stay. Some of these are nullifiers. There's an element of nullification here when that comes up in South Carolina who you know, informally kind of agree with the idea that I'm not going to let the federal government remove me from the Creek Indian land that I'm squatting on. But you get these white squatters, and those are the people that drive the Creek Indians to absolute distraction. And so my argument is the people most responsible for Creek Indian removal is not necessarily Andrew Jackson. It's the numerous faceless white squatters who came into the Creek Nation illegally and would not leave. And they sold alcohol to the Creeks. They got the Creeks in debt. They killed Creeks. They absolutely just brutalized the Creek people, terrorized the Creek people. Jackson's big sin when it came to Creek removal was not doing enough to protect the Creeks. And so that's why I say he was aggressive in his words. He wrote letters. He made speeches. He told the Indians, you must go. But when it comes to the Creeks, he was extremely passive when it came to the actual heavy lifting because he had the squatters, the state politicians, the governors who were already doing the work for him before he ever took office. Chris, not necessarily everybody who will be listening to this podcast knows who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Well, I grew up in Bellingham, Washington, so I'm from the opposite corner of the country. My father worked on the Lummi Indian Reservation, the Lummi Nation, L-U-M-M-I, which is up just north of Bellingham. So he worked there for 30 years. So I grew up among the Coast Salish culture. So in 2002, when I was looking for a PhD program, I decided that I was going to try to find something different and go to the opposite corner of the country and study at Auburn University under Catherine Braun, which was a great decision. I was there and graduated and wrote my dissertation on creek removal, which I turned into Rivers of Sand. And now you're over at UWA and you've been there since 2009. I have, yes. Chris, thank you very much for joining us and congratulations on winning the 2017 James Soulsby Award for the best book on Alabama history in the previous two years from the Alabama Historical Association. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.